We've been kind of on a contemplative rampage here. We've been talking about the contemplative life and what that all means. And uh, it gets us into some interesting territory and some places that, that are really foreign to us as modern Westerners and especially as uh, Orange County residents where life is so frantic and everything is going on at the same time, it seems like. To be able to move back into a place of silence and solitude, even if it's just interiorly, is really foreign to us. really works against the grain. It's so difficult for us. Um, and it doesn't feel at first like anything is really happening. So you need to push through, just like if you're starting a workout routine. You know, you've got to push through those few first weeks and months to get to the point where you feel like something is really happening, that there's some benefit to you. But the benefits are amazing. A few weeks ago, we talked about it in terms of the apophatic way, which is a big word that just means a way of emptying, a way, a negative way almost, a way of, of denying and renouncing, because there always has to be a descent. There has to be an emptying before there can be a filling. We walk around filled up to the brim all the time and wonder why we don't get filled, why God doesn't download anything new to us, why things always seem the same, because we're filled with all the same old stuff. To let that out, to pull the plug, let it drain, get refilled is part of the contemplative way. And we talked about it a week after that, about the edge of inside. That's staying on that threshold, staying in the doorway, staying in what's called liminal space, a space of transition. But it's a difficult place to stay because it's a place of, of, of a little bit of disturbance. It's a place where you don't feel like you're completely balanced, secure one way or another, but staying in that place of tension, staying in that place of sacred tension, as I like to call it, is also part of the contemplative way. Not necessarily drinking the Kool-Aid on one side or another, but bringing the edges to the middle and staying in that place where truth is always fresh, new, and most importantly, you're able to see it as such because you haven't closed yourself off to one thought process or another thought process. You're open to the movement of the Spirit at all times. The week before Frank spoke, two weeks ago, we talked about it in terms of an answer to the question of evil, the question of, of all of the difficulties and trials that we faced in life. Because that's the thing that breaks us all down. In the face of those difficulties, both global ones and personal ones, it is so difficult to just maintain this course, especially when it's a course of Silence and solitude interiorly with less to grab onto, less edges that make you feel secure and defined. The walls having thinned out of the fortress that you built earlier in life. And of course we said the answer to the question is that there is no answer to the question. You know, Life doesn't resolve, it just continues and moves and changes and we need to be present to it. It's being present to life that is the answer to the question rather than an answer in the intellectual way that we're thinking of it. And then Frank picked up the baton last week with a disco ball. So those of you who are here, yeah, we had the disco ball. It's always fun with Frank. But Frank was talking about the way we put God in a box, the way that we give God edges and handles and convenient ways to carry him around and make him portable, and yet he's too big for the box. He defies the box. And the image of the disco ball, where as it's spinning, it's reflecting bits of light all over the room, but also giving you different facets each time you look at it, something different each time you see. And that was a beautiful way to describe that. 
Now, I want to really pick up right where Frank left off last week and continue with this idea of God being too big for the box, too big for the convenient ways that we look at things, you know, because God is very different than we make him out to be. And this inability, I suppose, of us to really put a handle on God, to give him a definition, to categorize, to make it all fit within whatever framework and thought conception that we have is an endless source of frustration to us. And it really can absolutely move into deep despair as well. We rack our brains, (laughs) we scour scripture, looking for the answers that we so desperately want. Answers that will give us some sense of control. Answers that will give us some sense of being on top of life. To have a risk-free solution is what we're really looking for. A way to move through life, make all the decisions just right so we don't make any mistakes and we get exactly where it is that we think we want to go. As if life worked that way, right? But that's what we really want. And so this inability to really define God is frustrating and desperate. And we always wonder, you know, that we always think we must have missed some answer. There must be something along the way that we missed. And we go back to Scripture, we go back to the Bible, and we start looking again. We go listen to different speakers, and we're trying to figure out what is it that we missed. And the question is, did we miss anything at all? Did we miss it? Is there a knowledge out there available to us in life that God is actually withholding, that is not being made known to us, that would actually make our lives better? Is that possible? Is that what's going on? We live that way. We act that way as if there's a knowledge, a peace out there that if we could just get it, our lives would be better. But why would God do that? Why would God play hide-and-seek with his will? Why would God play hide-and-seek with bits of knowledge that would make our lives better? Would he really do that? That would be a pretty cruel joke if he did. And it gets very difficult to trust a God like that, who would play cat and mouse with our lives. Because this is some, there's a lot at stake here, isn't there? Our lives, our finances, our children, our families, the world... Heading up on an election, that seems like a big deal right now. All of these things, without that missing piece of knowledge, makes it so difficult for us to process life, to do life in a way that we can simply be and relax and move into that contemplative state. Always seems like the guard has to be up. Always seems like we have to be in that defensive crouch. Always wary. Always searching for something out there that we can bring in to make us whole to make us comfortable again. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is are we looking at this the right way? Is that really the way it is? And when I say it like that, you're probably saying, no, I don't think of it that way. But you know what? The way we live and the way we stress is telling a different story. So let me ask you a question. Do you all like magic? Like magic and magicians? That whole thing? Anybody not like magic? Okay. <laughs> I do have a couple of holdouts here. <laughs> now, why do you like magic? What is it about magic that is so attractive? Illusion? Mystery? There's a good word. Yeah. What's that? Cleverness. All right. The sense of making the impossible possible. You know, all of these things are good reasons to like 
magic. They take us out of the world as we know it and they put us into a place that anything is possible. How did he do that? We're curious. We want to know. It's, it's driving all of these things in us, kind of going back to our childhood. When the magician pulls up the curtain and hides what it is he's doing, you know, the mystery begins. When he hides something in the box and conceals it there, you know, the mystery begins. It creates the mystery. It brings us into it. And it makes us so intensely curious to find out, how did he do that? Even after we see the trick, we still want to know how to... And some of these guys are amazing. You see some of these street magicians? Oh my gosh, how do they... I see them levitating and you see them doing these card tricks and things that just seem incredibly impossible. They're getting so good at this. It draws us in. How many of you like Christmas presents? Anybody not like a Christmas present? I can, come on. All right, hold out there. You like Christmas presents at least, right? Okay. It's the wrapping paper that conceals the gift, keeps us guessing. You can put that gift three, four weeks before Christmas under the tree, and you're still looking at it, wondering what it is, shaking it. You know, as long as the wrapping paper is on, we're still guessing because the mystery is there. I love the first third of movies. I think I love the first third of movies better than I like the other two-thirds. The first third of the movie is when you're building the characters and you're getting to know people and you're getting a description of the problem, the issue, whatever's going on, and you have no idea what's happening. And it's building, building, building. And that sense of mystery is pushing you on. I can't tell how many times by the time I get to the last third of the movie, it's like, oh gosh, I should have stuck with the first third. Because the way it's tied up, the way the mystery is revealed is sometimes so unsatisfying. Yeah. Sometimes a Christmas gift isn't better than when it was wrapped under the tree. It's the mystery that we long for. It's the mystery that keeps us engaged. And how about just each other? How about just people? No matter how long you've been married, no matter how long you've known somebody, isn't there still something more that you learn day in and day out? Aren't there new facets and things? I didn't know you had that in you. It's the concealing of the mystery inside that makes it interesting, that pulls us through decades of life together. It's the mystery that gives us all of that. You know, ancient people lived in mystery. They were what we call epic, or at least what Leonard Sweet calls epic. Experiential, participatory, image-based, and communal. So different than our Western way, you know, but we are propositional. We want to propose a truth. You know, we're representational. We have people representing to others rather than everybody participating. We're word-based instead of image-based. We're individualistic instead of communal. We're the exact opposite of the way that the youngest generations in our society are processing information. But we're also exactly opposite from the ancient peoples who wrote our scriptures. They wrote epically experientially and in deep participation with nature and with life and with family. Completely image-based, completely subsumed, you know, submitted to the community, to the family, to the tribe, to the nation. So different. But it was all this mystery. Ancient peoples saw God in everything. They saw miracles everywhere. There were burning bushes and there were all these things happening. They lived so differently than we do. They lived in a magical place. And we've lost that. We've lost that magic. We spend so much time 
trying to resolve things in life. Ancient peoples didn't try to resolve anything. In fact, do you know what the sin of the Pharisees was that Jesus fought so hard against? The real sin of the Pharisees was to kill the mystery of relationship with their God, with the law. They used the law to codify everything. They used the law to put the edges around God and the relationship with God. Everything was just so. And if you did it just right, A plus B would equal C in there. And Jesus said, no, it doesn't work that way. You killed the mystery. You created certainty. You created edges where there can't be any if you're really going to have an authentic relationship with God. That was the sin of the Pharisees. And Jesus fought back. And you know what he fought back with? A child. He said, this is the emblem. This is the mascot of kingdom. This is what kingdom looks like. A non-rational child who is, guess what? Epic, right? Experiential, participatory. Ever worked with two and three-year-olds? They got their hands in everything. You give them paints, you think they're going to dip the paintbrush and just go by the numbers? Hang out their fingers in it, it's in their hair. It's, it's participatory. Of course it's image-based. They don't have language yet. They don't know words yet. And of course it's communal. Everything is one. Jesus used the child to fight back against the sin of the Pharisees, which was to kill the mystery of life. Children live in that magical place. To the child, the imaginary world is as real as the real world. Their imaginary friends are as real as the adults and the people around them. They accept things as they are. They live in that place where there is real mystery and real magic to them. Many of the third world peoples and aboriginal peoples also still live in mystery and still live in a magical place. We see that in their cultures and we see that in what they write and what they do. I've often heard that people say that there's so many more miracles happening in third world countries than happen in first world countries in the West. And you always wonder why that is. Is God favoring them more? Is he answering their prayers more? And why is it that all these miracles are happening there but they're not happening here? Now, I suppose you could say because they live in this magical place, because they live in mystery, that maybe they're attributing to God things that we would have rational explanations for. And I suppose that's a rational argument. Makes sense. But maybe they're just open to things that we're no longer open to. Maybe there are certain things that you have to believe in order to see. We're always talking about seeing as believing. But maybe there's some things you need to believe first. And because they're in that place, because they're open, because they're malleable, because they're porous and things can still move through them, things are happening in their culture and in their lives that aren't happening here because we have an explanation for everything. We've killed the mystery with science. We've killed the mystery with our laws, with our ethics, with our social justice. All of which is good. All of which is necessary. But where's the balance? How are we going to go about doing this? You know? Maybe they don't use rational explanations, and we do. But this is the way that we have to start to think about things. Because maybe there's another way for us to live here in the West, here in Orange County, that'll open us up to something that we didn't think was possible. I was flipping channels, and I came across this one show, and it was, it was pretty bad. 
But uh, there was one section there. It's one of these supernatural shows. I think Jeanette would like it. It had zombies and things in it. But, <laughs> but at any rate, there was this one person who had just been brought into the reality of what was going on in this movie supernaturally, and the old timer who was there is just kind of laughing at her and saying, "Hey, I used to. There was a time in my life when I thought everything was ordered and everything went just according to the way I thought, and I've had to leave that behind." And the other person is still debating, and he says, "You know what? Do you know how breathing works? You know, you take air into your lungs, and your and your lungs convert and take the oxygen out." And she says, "I had you know sixth grade biology." He said, "But what happened when you were a child?" Did you understand how breathing worked as a child? And yet you could still breathe. You know, you didn't need to understand it for it to be real. You didn't need to understand it for it to work in your life. You didn't need to understand it to participate in it. You just did. And now because we think we understand it, it puts it into what? A different place? A different category? It's still breathing. It's still a gift that we couldn't give ourselves. It's still part of the mystery. If we choose to look at it that way, if we choose to think of it that way, we love the thrill of a mystery, don't we? It creates this insatiable desire for us to know something. But once known, once the trick is revealed, the thrill is gone. And that knowledge, that knowing, satisfies for just one moment, doesn't it? And then it's over. And we miss the thrill that we had before because now we think we have this knowledge. Now at the deepest levels of our humanity, this creates sort of an existential stalemate. Don't you like that? Existential stalemate. It does. I'm going to read you um, just a little bit of Psalm, uh, Proverbs. This is Proverbs 25.2. It's in your bulletins and I'm sure Brandon will put it up on the... On the screens, Proverbs 25.2, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. There is the stalemate. Now, because Jews, in their mysterious way of looking life, see God in action of everything, they would state it this way, God conceals things. Does God really conceal things on purposely withhold? No, that's not part of his nature as we understand it from Jesus But it sure looks like and feels like he's concealing things. And the fact of the matter is, as Frank pointed out last week, now we can only see through the glass dimly. At some point, face to face. But now this is the way it is. This is life. We can't pierce the veil of infinity and see reality as it is yet. And so here we are. The glory of God is concealed ultimate reality is concealed from us and yet the glory of us as kings is to always search out. So here we are. That's the rub, right? We have this need. We have this obsession to solve the unsolvable. Why are we so obsessed with solving the unsolvable? Because we're afraid. The fear drives us. We need to control. We need to understand so we can feel as if everything is going to be okay. But how do you get off that hamster wheel? And when is ever enough enough? You know, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. Dale Carnegie. And so God, like the magician, seems to have pulled the curtain up, seems to have put things in a box, and we're left trying to deal with this. Take a look at Job 41, 1 through 8. One of the most beautiful passages. He's drawing out a metaphor for us. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongues with a cord? 
Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Do you see what he's doing? He's taking Leviathan, the huge, the sea monster, the whale, whatever it is, the beast that is so big that it defies any ability for a human being to control it. Can you put a rope in its nose? Comparing it to a domesticated animal. You can't do that like you can with an ox or a cow or a lamb or a goat. Will he make many pleas to you? Now comparing it to a person that you have subjugated in battle, most likely. Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him as your servant forever? Will you play with him as a bird? Will you put him on a leash for your girls, comparing him to a pet? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him and remember the battle. He will not do it again. I love this. This is beautiful poetry. This is Jewish Shakespeare. Take note. Jumping to verse 31. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Total poetic metaphor. God, the ultimate, is too big to be contained in human thought. You can't do it. You can't control it. You can't understand it. It's just as impossible as for you to pull the whale. Someone just said they went whale watching and saw a blue whale, largest animal on the face of the earth. You can pull that out with a fish hook? I don't think so. And so what he has created is this existential stalemate. What has created it for us? What is it that has created this conundrum for us? This need to solve the unsolvable, you know? The first thing is fear. We talked about that. We only like a mystery (laughs) when it doesn't threaten our lives and when it doesn't threaten the outcomes that we want to achieve. That's when we like mysteries. But when they start to get down to something that really touches too close to home, then we want it solved by God. I'm going to solve this thing. I need to know this. So what is the second thing then that creates this existential stalemate. What I really think it is, is our view of Scripture itself. We have been taught to view Scripture as the inspired Word of God. And since the Enlightenment, since the Reformation 500 years ago, sola scriptura has been the cry that we have learned, which is Latin for Scripture alone. So otherwise, the, the Reformers... And the, the scientist and the whole change in culture since the Enlightenment has gone more and more towards rational thought. And the reformers, trying to get out from under Roman Catholic traditions, said Scripture alone is what reveals God's voice to us. Scripture alone. No more traditions, no more any of this stuff. If it can't be found in Scripture, it doesn't exist. All going to be in Scripture. That married with this increasing rational thought meant that we're now looking at Scripture rationally. We're looking for a rational download of God's, God's nature, God's plan, the mechanisms for salvation. I've heard the Scriptures called the owner's manual for life. You know, it's sort of just get this, understand it, get the bullet points, and you'll be saved. It's a mechanism for salvation. It's all right there. 
Everything has become so cut and dried and rational. How do you read about Leviathan in a rational way? Well, we understand that that's poetry and we need to read that differently. Much more of the Bible is poetry than we even give credence to because it doesn't look like poetry to us. And even the portions that aren't strictly poetry are still coming from that epic understanding, that epic way of looking at life, that place of mystery. The writers of Scripture came from that place. We are so locked into our understanding of Scripture, it's very difficult for us to be able to deal with mystery, the mystery of life. It's almost as if we've committed the same sin of the Pharisees with our book, with our Bible. We've killed the mystery by understanding the book in such a way. A few days ago, I got an email from somebody, and I want to read a little portion of it because she's asking a really central question. She writes, I'm wondering if I can ask my scholar friend a question, and she puts a little happy face, sideways happy face there. This may be addressed somewhere in the great archive on the Effects website, but here it is. I know I was raised to think that God's word is a book, pen and ink. I'm wondering if there's an argument to be made that the concept is a bit broader and more mystical than that. For example, would it be heretical to say that the words God speaks to me in private that articulate his way are just as meaningful, perhaps in a different way, than the word? I'm wondering if David in the Psalms is writing scripture or just singing songs that God gave him in their private moments. I love that image. This is just the pedal that's up for me, and you probably talked about it a million times, and I wasn't listening close enough to hear. Heretical? Is it heretical to think that way? That our relationship with God has something of value to offer us? Something revelatory that God is speaking outside of Scripture? Of course, if it's of value, it's going to line up with Scripture, but is Scripture the only place we can get anything? See, I think it's so sad that we've been taught to think so, that everything has to come out of the book. What about the life that we're living? What about the experience that we're having? And as you move into this contemplative space, what about the connection that you're growing? You know? What did the writers of Scripture have before there was Scripture? Job is talked about as being the oldest book in the Bible. What did Job have? or the writer of Job have as he was writing scripture? What did Moses have as he was writing the first five books before there was law, before there was anything written? Did God speak to those writers of scripture and then as soon as the book was done, stop? And he's not speaking anymore? Or is he still speaking and always has been speaking? In print, and every other way that he can think of to try to get across to us that there's a connection point. You have to examine these. Ask these questions. Is that really what's going on? Is that really what is happening here? So she's asking these questions. Scripture is, when you think about it, it's a snapshot of a relationship that an individual or a group of people had at a given moment. They had a relationship and they're expressing it in the best way that they can, 
trying to express something that is really inexpressible. Doing the best they can. I wanted to read a little bit from Brendan Manning, who's dealing with the same issue. He writes, It is of immense importance to understand that every word spoken and written about God is delivered in the language of analogy. Analogy. How could it be any other way? Can't describe directly, because we don't have the words. We don't have the processing power any more than we can draw the whale out with a fish hook. Analogy. In any divine analogy, there's a similarity between the human words used about God and the reality of God himself. There is also, however, a radical dissimilarity. What is affirmed in one breath must be denied in the next. For example, when we liken divine love to human love, the similarity induces us to think that we're getting a grip on God's love. And yes, though human love is the best image we have, it is utterly inadequate to express the love of the infinite. Not because human love is too sugary and sentimental or because it's too passionate and emotional, but because it can never fully compare with that source whence it came. The passion, emotion, love of the totally other. The more we let go of our concepts and images, which always limit God, the bigger God grows and the more we approach the mystery of his indefinability. But mystery is an embarrassment to the modern mind. All that is elusive, enigmatic, hard to grasp, will eventually yield to our intellectual investigation and then to our conclusive categorization, or so we would like to think. But, and listen to this, but to avoid mystery is to avoid the only God worthy of worship, honor, and praise. Please put that on your refrigerator. To avoid mystery is to avoid the only God worthy of worship, honor, and praise. The effects of beholding this God, that is, contemplating the glory of the Lord, are profound and far-reaching. Confronted with the vision, however fleeting and obscure, of divine majesty, one becomes reluctant to speak because human language breaks down in the attempt to convey what can be grasped only in a non-rational and intuitive way. The human tendency toward projection, ascribing to God our thoughts, feelings, and attitudes about ourselves and others, is unmasked in all its absurdity. Distorted images and caricatures of God as vengeful, whimsical, fickle, and punitive, images that cannot fail to engender anxiety, fear, scrupulosity, and unhealthy guilt, are exposed for what they are, puny and pathetic human concepts. You know, the Reformation has done a job on us. Everything is in the text, and we understand the text rationally as it presents to us. But is God really angry? Is God really vengeful? Is God grieved? Is God genocidal? Is God all of these things that are explained to us or described to us in Scripture? There's no way to answer that question. But we know who God is because we know who Jesus is and the way he lived. And those things don't line up. And yet this projection that we do, and the Jews had made an art form out of it. It's the way they idiomatically spoke to attribute everything to God that they experienced in their lives. Because they experienced it, it came from God. Is there another way that we can look at scripture so we can understand? This is the language of analogy. 
This is what we do. We anthropomorphize. We use metaphor. We use whatever we can to try to get across that snapshot of the relationship and express it as best we can. If you're going to try to describe childbirth to a man or childbirth to a woman who's never given birth, how do you do that? How do you describe something that is such a singular experience that if you haven't had it, you've got no idea, no idea what it's about? I heard one person describe it this way. Take your top lip and pull it over your head. <laughs> Does that do it for you? How do we describe these things? How do we get to the place where we can start to understand? See, the thing is, as soon as we think we believe that we've got it all figured out, we commit the sin of the Pharisees. We kill mystery and we step right out of kingdom, right out of the possibility of that childlike existence with our God. Take a look at Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Here's Solomon at the end of his long life, at the end of his reign, with everything that he had amassed. He writes, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquitted, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much, much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. At the end of his life, Solomon finally realizes his mistake. He tried to do something intellectually. He tried to grasp something, create edges and handles that have none. But he realized it. On his deathbed, he finally figured it out. He looked around and said, no matter what you do, you're going to die. You know? Everybody is brought to the same state. All these things that I thought I had categories for and had degrees for and all of this stuff that I had differentiated, it all comes down to one thing in the end. What have I really done? So the question is, can we get to that same place before our deathbed? So we have some time to be able to play in kingdom the way Jesus and God intended. You see, there's another way to approach life and spirituality to embrace and to learn to love the mystery, to savor it, to taste it, to suck the marrow out of it, to enjoy it the way it presents, to live it without trying to solve it, which would kill it at the same time. Belden Lane puts it this way in his book, This Solace of Fierce Landscapes, which is about contemplative life. He writes, God cannot be had. The desert tradition affirms, if this means laying a hold of God by way of concept, language, or experience, God is a desert, ultimately beyond human comprehension. John Cassian defined contemplative prayer as an imperfect yet astonished gaze at God's ungraspable nature, something hidden. (laughs) Did you get all that? 
the way mystics, the way people who have experienced God directly, the words they have to use to describe are so outlandish, so out there. It's like, it goes right past you. and like, what? What? An imperfect yet astonished gaze at God's ungraspable nature, something hidden, finally from human sight. Evagrius advised his students, Evagrius was an ancient um, father of the church, advised his students that when you're praying, do not shape within yourself any image of the deity. He knew that the God revealed in Jesus Christ is known ultimately only along the dry desert path of faith. Don't create that image in your mind. What were the Jews enjoined not to do? They couldn't make a graven image of God for exactly the same reason. As soon as you create the image, as soon as you create the images, the edges, you shelved yourself off from the true experience that can go on in the mystery Still other teachers in the contemplative tradition echo the author of The Cloud of Unknowing in emphasizing the need to love God with a naked intent, completely apart from any of God's attributes or benefits. That's something that's really hard for us, to try to approach God without thinking about his attributes or the benefits to us, just with this naked intent. Can you do that? How do you do that? God is a desert to be entered and loved, never an object to be grasped or understood. In the end, we are no more able to possess God than we are able to possess ourselves. See, our fear creates this obsessive need to control and to possess. But if you're controlling or possessing something, you're not loving it. That is the opposite of love. Love is freedom pure freedom. The thing that you really love, you make completely free. Because if it's not free, then it can't love you back. All of this stuff is intertwined. John of the Cross, the famous 12th century Spanish mystic, he writes it this way. To reach satisfaction in all, desire satisfaction in nothing. To come to the knowledge of all, desire the knowledge of nothing. To come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. To arrive at being all, desire to be nothing. In this nakedness, the spirit finds its quietude and rest. For in coveting nothing, nothing tires it by pulling it up, and nothing oppresses it by pushing it down, because it is in the center of its humility. And here's that paradoxical language that echoes Jesus. Remember the way Jesus spoke. It was always in that paradox. The first will be last and last will be first. And if you want to live your life, you have to lose it because it's the only way to convey mystery. How do we do it? Except by analogy and metaphor and paradox. Nothing else can capture, especially if it's attempting to resolve, to quantify, to describe the edges of. And finally, a little passage from Richard Rohr. We can't seem to know the good news that we are God's beloveds on our own. It has to be mirrored to us. We're essentially social beings. Another has to tell us that we are beloved and good. We can't tell ourselves. Within contemplative prayer, we present ourselves for the ultimate gaze, the ultimate mirroring. Before this gaze of love, we gradually disrobe and allow ourselves to be seen, to be known in every nook and cranny. Nothing hidden, nothing denied, nothing disguised. It's like lovemaking. The wonderful thing is, after a while, we feel so safe that we know we don't have to pretend or disguise anymore. We don't have to put on any kind of costume. 
Letting your naked self be known by God is always to recognize your need for mercy and your own utter inadequacy and littleness. You realize that even the best things you've done have often been for mixed and selfish motives, not really for love. Your need for mercy draws you close to God. It's a wonderful and humiliating experience. Within contemplation, you stand under an immense waterfall of mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. Knowing your need for mercy opens you to receiving mercy. Knowing your intimate need for mercy is in great part what it means to know, need, or fall in love with God. Because God is mercy itself and must be experienced as such. If you live like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, where you do everything perfectly and you are never in need of mercy, then you will never know God. So don't be too good, even in your own eyes. Make sure you always and happily stand on the receiving end of God, for self-emptying always precedes any new outpouring. Frankly, it all comes down to this. God doesn't love you because you are good, God loves you because God is good. (laughs) So don't be too good, really? Does that comport with everything that we've been taught? Don't be too good? Aren't we supposed to be perfect? That's not what that passage means. This is something that is so hard for us to get through. What it really means, what he's really saying, is don't become entitled because you think you've earned something, that you're entitled to something. That's what he means by don't be too good. Because the moment you become entitled, it becomes impossible for you to be grateful. As soon as you become entitled and you think you've earned it, there is no more mystery in life. You've figured it all out. You've earned it down to the last penny. And it better be paid. I'm telling you that. You've got it all figured out. Mystery is dead. And do you notice the theme through all three of those writings? It was all about nakedness, wasn't it? That was a thread. That was a theme through it all. And this is where I tend to get in trouble when I start talking along these lines. But this is not necessarily sexual. This is about this childlike ability to simply be in the garden. You know, a small child doesn't know he's naked. She's naked. They'll run around. Dress them. Don't dress them. They don't care. They run around. They go into the bathroom. They don't shut the door. They don't care. They're still in the garden. They're still walking with God in the cool of the evening. That kind of presence, that kind of unselfconscious awareness, just being here now, accepting things as they are, this is what Jesus is talking about. This is what the prophets are talking about. This is what the mystics are talking about. Can we do that? Can we let go of the rational fig leaf that we all put on as we left the garden? At that moment, when we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we put on this rational fig leaf to walk again in the cool of the evening, just unafraid, with God, open, completely transparent, undisguised, letting all our defenses down, is to walk again in total mystery. Because that won't come from knowing or understanding. It comes from letting go of the need to know and understand. Can we be completely unafraid and unknowing at the same time? That's the question, isn't it? Because of our fear, we want the knowledge. Can we have both at the same time? Does a child understand what its parents are about? Does a child know the workings of the, of the, of the parents in the family? 
Not a clue. They, they don't have the synapses to be able to understand what it means to pay bills and go to work and to have that kind of responsibility. But it doesn't make them anxious. In fact, it makes them joyful. I've seen the boss's job. I don't want it. I had a friend who wanted to give all his keys away. He said he would really arrive in life when he had no keys left. I totally get that as I walk around jingling all my keys. You know? To let go of that stuff. To let go of the knowledge. To let go of the need for knowledge. You know, when you're on an airplane and you're driving through stormy skies, don't you want the captain to know more than you do? If you're going into surgery, don't you want the surgeon to know more than you do? Gosh, I sure do. And as I go through life with all of its twists and turns, I certainly want a God that I can't comprehend. Because if I could comprehend God, then man, if I can't do any better than this, then man, it really gets scary. To lean into, to rest in the unknowing is exactly what we're talking about here. Now, what can you do with willingness to rest in the mystery? How does that change your life? What does it allow you to do? I want to read you one more short email because this thing just grabbed me and I just got it last week. And this woman from Arizona, I believe, she found us online. She writes, Part of my journey is being a parent to a child whose development is atypical. My daughter Halo, don't you love that name? My daughter Halo was a very fussy baby and a very busy toddler and she still can't follow the abstract words that are being taught in school or church It really made me realize, from a child development standpoint, it is not an appropriate way to teach, abstractly. In these early years, teaching should be more organic and hands-on and stimulating. This was especially true for my little one, but it has become an important part of my journey, too, because instead of just accepting things at church, I am forced to really think about them. My daughter has talents that outweigh her weaknesses, While she is oblivious to some things, she is so perceptive to others. We are all trapped inside a box in how we see the world, but her box is very different than mine. When I get on her level and connect with her, I can see outside my box, and it's magical. I made a book for her about waiting, uh, I made a book for her about how waiting to be and becoming her mom has changed the way I see things. It tells about when I was praying because I wanted children so badly and I looked up and I saw a girl twirling in my empty hall. This brought a lot of comfort as I waited for her to come to earth. A few years later, when I was watching her trapped in her world and spinning in circles to help herself regulate, that image came to my mind. I was filled with an understanding that this was not that something went wrong, but she was sent to earth exactly how God intended to send her. He didn't just see past her limitations. He blessed her with them to enable her to be amazing in ways others may not understand. Wow. Wow. What can you do with a willingness to rest in mystery? Well, you can move a mountain as big as an autistic daughter. You can turn that mountain into a new way of seeing life and love. Was this woman's dream really a promise from God? I don't know. It's the wrong question to ask anyway. Mystery has power in our lives. Explanation does not.
to rest in the mystery, to believe that God works at levels that we will never understand, is involved in our lives in ways that we will never see or maybe even know about, is to live in a magic realm again, to see and connect with God. Watch how you struggle to resolve life on a day-to-day basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. How often you curse the mystery, curse the unknowing, curse the hand that has been dealt to you, and just the unknowing itself. Defend your right to be ignorant, to be amazed, to be surprised. Guard your precious mystery as the last vestige of the child in you, the one who doesn't know that he or she is naked, the one that knows how to play in kingdom as God has intended for us. Let's pray. Father, all I can say is thank you for the mystery. Thank you for being you, who you are. Thank you for the ability for us to be good dependents, to be receivers that without knowing anything, we can receive everything from you, that there is no restriction, there is no withholding of the flow of your love and grace and in the presence of your spirit. Help us to question the way that we look at things so that the difficulties in our lives can turn around and smooth out and become something different. Help us to foster change by simply looking deeply at the framework through which we look at our lives. We just want more of you, Father. We want more of you. Help us to let go of the limits we put on that knowing that has nothing to do with understanding so that we can just break out and we can see mystery and miracle and be surprised and amazed. And life will have the full of meaning and purpose. And it'll be fun again. Thank you so much, Lord, for being who you are. Thanks for loving us the way you do. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.